Welcome to Software Architecture Radio, where we discuss the latest in software architecture patterns and practices with the hands-on practitioners creating them. You can find us on the web at softwarearchitecturerad.io. I'm your host, Matt Stein. Okay, so today I'm here with Tudor Girba, and um, we're going to talk a a little bit about the things that uh, he's been working on and and that interest him around um, the relationship between... uh, solving problems and architecture and, and so forth, but doing that with a little bit different approach than what maybe um, we're used to. Um, so, Tudor, do you mind uh, kind of introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background? Hi. Well, thanks for having me. So, um, my main background is um, I construct tools and techniques for software developers. It might sound a bit uh, strange. So, I, for example, I'm leading the work on a platform which is called Moose, moosetechnology.org. And that's a platform for software and data analysis, an extensive one, open source. Um, and I created a method which is called Humane Assessment. I'm in the core team of a new programming language which is called Faro. I'm working on a new kind of an IDE which is called the Glamorous Toolkit. I have received a research prize which is, uh, even though I'm in industry, I'm the only non-university professor that it has received that prize for my contributions to software engineering research. And uh, yeah, I started a company recently to bring these ones closer to the industry. Um, but when people ask me you know, what I do uh, in one sentence, I tell them that I help development teams to not read code. Okay, cool. So uh, you're pretty busy. Yeah, um, I am busy, yeah. Um, so uh, we're here actually at uh, ArtConf in Clearwater, Florida in uh, early December. And uh, um, you would think that we would be out enjoying the beach, but it's nothing but fog here uh, where we are right now. I think it burned off for a couple hours this morning, so we decided to uh, have this conversation instead. Um, But at the conference, uh, you're given a few presentations, and um, one is very much in line with what you said, this idea of um, how to solve problems without reading code. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what that means? Right. So in the last year, I worked with, I, I asked about 2,000 developers if they agree with this observation that developers spend like 50% of their time reading code. And then there is a over-the-board agreement that this is true. Uh, at least, you know, some people actually say this is not really true because they spend more than 50% of their time reading code. And uh, now this might be fine, but I'm asking them the next question. And the next question is, when was the last time you heard developers talk about how they read code? And this is where silence, you know, this question is always met with silence. And the, the problem there is that we never talk about it. Now, in business terms, it basically means that we're spending the largest chunk of our development budget on something nobody ever talks about, on one single activity about which nobody talks about. And... That doesn't make much sense um, because, you know, if you don't talk about it, um, you can never improve it. And we're talking about the largest expenditure we have. Let's just put it in perspective a little bit. So there's an estimated 1 million developers here in the U.S. Let's say that they cost the company on average $100,000 per year. 50% of that means $50 billion per year uh, just on one that single activity. So and we're talking about these are the direct costs. And uh, I don't think it makes any sense for us not to talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating that you bring that up. And when I was looking through the materials that you sent me this morning, 
and ran across that, it made me think of a presentation that I gave Oh, maybe two or three years ago on the No Fluff Tour called uh, Code Archaeology. And um, in the very front part of that presentation, um, I talk about a, uh, a, uh, a podcast that uh, Dave Thomas did on Software Engineering Radio, where he said exactly the same thing. We as developers spend, he didn't give a fixed percentage like you're working with this 50% number, but a large amount of time reading code. And yet, when we go look at how software developers are trained, you know, all of our training is focused on how to write code, banging out code, designing code, testing code. We don't really talk about reading code at all. And then his point was you look at how other creative professions are trained. You look at um, people who are training to be painters. They spend a lot of their time actually learning about other people's paintings. And you look at people who are training to be writers, they spend a lot of their time reading great writing. And then we look at, well, you know, what does it mean to go look at, you know, read code and, and read code well? And what's the difference between good code and bad code and what you, can you learn from it? So um, interesting related topic. Definitely. And he also, on a slightly different Note, he made a lot of money by selling a company, created a company, you know, had a niche application, which was based on this idea that analysis, you know, doesn't have to be expensive and uh, it can be tailored uh, for the for the specifics of the problem. And this is where it's a bit strange. So you see, developers are paid, most of them are paid specifically for getting users to make decisions by preventing those users from ever seeing the raw data. So most software systems help people make decisions by specifically by preventing those people from ever seeing the raw data. And they are better for it. I mean, they make much better decisions like this than if they would be exposed to the raw data. Now, and that's the skill that developers have. They transform data problems into decision-making problems. And but when developers have their own problem, they fall back to the most manual way of doing things. And this is what reading means. Reading source code means going manually through the rawest form of the data. And trying to put it all in your head, it's just, it's a very, I, I, the way I see it is I call it as an inhumane type of, a, of an alternative. You see, when you see a person plowing the field with his bare hands, you would say, well, that's inhumane. It's because it's not appropriate for humans. Sure. Uh, when I see a person trying to make decisions about a million lines of text or by scrolling through it, I think that's inhumane because it's just not appropriate for humans. So this is where I created this method, which is called humane assessment. So what is humane assessment in well, a nutshell? The thing is, um, when, pe when developers read code, they actually don't want to read code. They normally want to understand enough to make a decision. So reading is a way in which they gather the information out of the code. But if it's a way, then there can be another way. But it also means that reading doesn't describe the activity. There's something else that is at play there. So this activity of understanding enough to make a decision, we have to give it a name. We can't leave it you know, code reading because we will not get out of that paradigm. So I call it assessment. I'm the one that names it, so I give it a, I give it a name. And um, now, the thing about software is that it is incredibly contextual. So... That is, no two systems have the same kind of problems. They might have the same classes of problems, but not the exact problems. 
So, and when when we get, a, for example, let's say a static analysis tool, you know, people use static analysis tools, but the way those they use those tools is not quite appropriate. Um, what do I mean by that? So very often static analysis tools come with the, you know, one click kind of interface. You say, here's my system, click this button, boom, you get a beautiful report. And there's uh, lots of investment in the rendering and that rendering can be, you know, uh, breathtaking in how it looks. But the problem there with this approach is that by definition, that tool must be, uh, you know, it has to work on your system, it has to work on my system. So the consequence there is that it means that the tool captures what's common between our systems. But the value of our system doesn't come with, you know, from what's common, from what we have in common, but from where uh, we are different. So, for example, if you have a Java system, uh, our value doesn't come from the fact that we're using Java. Uh, our value mm -hmm. comes from what we build on top of that Java system. And this is where architecture is, business decisions, technology decisions, all of that are built on top of the basics. So just having something that captures plain Java, potential Java problems, is just focusing uh, on, you know, 0.1% of the right. meaningful value. Right. So, so the alternative yeah. to that is to the only way, we can't predict the kind, the exact problems. We can only predict the classes of problems that you might have. So uh, now we have splitting monolithic application into microservices is a problem. So obviously, you know, handling dependencies and distinguishing between good dependencies versus bad dependencies is an important thing. And it's not just about cycles. Cycles is one thing, but <laughs> imagine, for example, that you're using some sort of a spring something. So it, it makes a big difference. You know, when, you, if, when you're in a monolithic app in, in the same container, you can directly call a class or you can use something that is properly annotated to be a service so that it's, it's right. more suitable for a service call. So both of them, from a, from a Java point of view, both of them are equally valid. But from the goal point of view, uh, taking into account that one of the classes is annotated with the ser as a service and the other one isn't uh, makes a big difference. Sure. And that's a choice at a technological level. Uh, so it's not just Java, it's the Java plus the technology. Now, the thing is that people don't just have one technology, they have many. So the combinations of all of those facts uh, just with this generic problem, splitting a monolithic application right. microservices has to take all those things into account. So the consequence there is that you have to create the tools that take those real that take that reality into account. And now the question here is, how much does it cost to create such a tool? And we've been trained for a long time to believe that tools are expensive, uh, but they're not. They don't have to be. So what we do with the Moose Technology uh, Project is to show that analysis could be uh, minutes cheap. So the question there is, what would happen if you could extract any piece of information about your system and visualize it the way you want, let's say within 15 minutes? Of course, it's not going to always be the case. But still, imagine that you could put a face onto a problem uh, within 15 minutes, in a 15 minutes time frame. How would that change the way you think about your system? And how would that change the mental, the, the process? Because this we're just talking about the individual effort. But how would that change the way the team now steers architecture for a long period of time? So I think what you're getting at, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of this is inherent in um, it, we want to make better decisions. We think that taking a more holistic approach to doing that with tooling is going to take too long. 
And so we re- immediately revert back to what we think is quick, which is just Radio. go work your way through the system manually. And it actually ends up being the opposite of that. It ends up being more expensive. So you're trying to short circuit that kind of uh, cost equation and say, okay, well, I can give you rapid feedback and feedback that is, you know, is much higher resolution in terms of getting you to the heart of the problems that you're actually being faced with architecturally. Whereas when you're reading individual lines of code, I think one of the pieces of literature that you you sent to me kind of uh, compared that to, you know, you're constantly staring into a microscope. Exactly. When you're trying to solve a problem that's actually, you know, at like a 10,000 foot view, you're focused at, you know, the micron level. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's, it's like I'm saying, you know, the, the metaphor there is that you hire somebody to build a city and you give him a magnifier glass as the only possible tool with which he can inspect what's going on. And then expect that the city is has a meaningful, uh, you know, uh, cohesive structure at the end. That's it's inappropriate. Um, but yeah, you, what you were saying about the tools is absolutely correct. The thing is, the, the kinds of tools that developers are being exposed to right now have done a good deal. It was they were great maybe twenty years ago, but now they're really we know more, and we should take what in, what we know now into account. So, you know, if you take for example something like Eclipse. Um, the cost of a new plugin is measured in you know days or weeks, uh, but what what would happen if the cost of that plugin would be measured in minutes? How would that change? Uh, how would that change the behavior? And so, first thing is that people should know that it is possible to have minutes-like tools, so tools that are being built within minutes, and then this you know once you realize that this is possible, then you we, and then we have to deem the problem of understanding code as being a meaningful subject of conversation, right now, which right now isn't. Now, what happened? Why do I? I'm very focused on getting people to talk about it. And why is that? You know, for example, what, if you look into the microservices or data space, the kinds of the kinds of things that happened in the last three to five years were completely unpredictable five years ago. The way these things have changed is that we have deemed these problems worthy of conversation industry-wide. And the consequence now is that we have new business models that were totally impossible or unpredictable a couple of years ago. Not just new solutions, new business models. Sure, absolutely. And this is where, for me, the problem is, you know, first, the first thing we need to solve is make this thing a subject of conversation. How does a concrete solution would look like at the end uh, I'm sure that we can't predict right now. I'm just seeing this is a, such a large space that is totally uh, unexplored that we don't we don't we don't we are unable right now to evaluate the potential. But the potential, I think, is really huge. So, what would you say? Um, so, there's a couple of questions that I want to ask that have kind of Go ahead. popped up and um, as we've been talking. One question, I guess, that I'll start with. Okay, we can change the economics of tool creation from minutes or days, or I'm sorry, for from hours or day, days to minutes, right? So so when I think about tools, the tools that I'm familiar with, it's, it's, it's very hard to imagine being able to construct a useful tool other than like a one-off shell script to munch some data for a, a one-off effort um, in, in that kind of a time frame. So what kind of tools are we talking about that you can construct in minutes that are going to provide the type of value 
uh, <coughs> that you're talking about. Well, but I mean, what you just said is that that type of tool is an important tool. Now, here's, here's the thing. Um, if you give a developer a million rows in a database or whatever, a million records in a database, the first, and just say there's a problem there. The first thing the developer does is writes a query. Select this and that and whatever, combine this and this. Um, the first thing the developer does. If, on the other hand, you give the same developer million lines of code and say, well, there's a problem there, the developer starts scrolling. Mm-hmm. There's no distinction between the two problems. Right. So the nature of the problems is, is, is it, the two problems are identical in nature, but there's a very distinct approach. Uh, the, the, the way we approach the problem is very different. Now, why is that so? So in, in the past, the previous century, there was a, you know, Marshall McLuhan. He was looking at the effect of the introduction of TV and radio onto the American culture. And right about when, you know, the famous now Conway, Mel Conway, coined his law, mm-hmm. he coined, he looked at the different things. So he said, what's the effect of these tools on, how, on our culture, on how we think? And he saw that the, tool, that the effect was massive. And he coined the law, another law. And, uh, and that law says that we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. Right. Now, the consequence of that is that if that is true, which is still to be proven, but if that is true, it should follow that we should be very picky with the characteristics of the tools that we expose ourselves to because they will determine the way we're going to think. Okay. Now, if you look back at how you know um, a database tool looks like, the, the, large, the first thing you see is a query box. What do people do? They write a query. But that query isn't a regular expression query. It's a very qualified query. A, a query that takes into account the structure of the data. Because you already know it, so it doesn't make any sense not to utilize that. Right. But when you look in the normal IDE, there is no query box. And as a consequence, people don't write queries. Um, or if there is some sort of a query box... That query box is a regular expression, uh, which treats code as if it would be plain text with zero structure. Right. There's it's there's no semantic to it whatsoever. Right. Like it when I think about SQL, you know, I'm thinking about I'm actually not telling it what to go look for. I'm actually telling it this is what I want the result set to look like. You figure out how to go get that done. So do, are we talking about building yeah. a query language right. for code? There is, there is, it's irresponsible right now not to have a query language for code. I mean, most, most problems we're having are actually search problems. Most of the problems, most understanding problems, especially when we're talking about large scale or understanding you know, architecture constraints, uh, are nothing but, but queries. And they can be normally very easily solved with just plain queries. Now, 20 years ago, this knowing how to write queries like that was a problem. It's not a problem anymore. We know how to do it, except that that information didn't permit to, mm-hmm. the, to, the, you know, to the normal developers. And that's the problem. Right now, developers do not uh, demand the, the right tools. That's why we have to make it a subject of conversation first. What kind of tools, how would those query languages talk about uh, look like that would be a, pr- a beautiful subject of, of conversation. And I would love to have that one. Of course, so the, that's why what we do with Moose is uh, we want to show a way in which these things could look like, and that's an integrating thing which goes way beyond just queries. Because once you you know once you match a query with a visual representation, what would happen if you say, okay, here all the 
you know, all the services that are using this part of the database. Okay, great. Um, and now on top of it, let's quickly visualize how these services are being used by different customers and then we cluster this visually. Okay. Right, and then we can figure out, are they decoupled from the way they're being used or uh, maybe they are used together by a bunch of, of uh, um, bunch of clients, which maybe give us, it would give us an indication of how we could split a monolithic application by just looking at how those services are actually being used from clients. But just, you know, again, it would be a query. Give me those services that are, that, that I care, that I care about. And then having afterwards combined that with, with the visualization, showing you how they are clustered, you know, according to, uh, to the usages, to, to how they, these services are being used by clients. Okay. So now imagine that this one would then cost you a couple of minutes to build. Now in that situation, it would be perfectly feasible to, you know, you don't have to aim for reuse upfront. It's, it's absolutely a profitable situation to build that for five minutes, use it for another 10, make a decision, and then, you know, start again. And this is not uncommon. Most developers throw dozens of queries per day away. Why? Because it's so cheap to it's create a query. It's cheap to create queries. Right. Yes. So we don't have to necessarily, from the beginning, think of tools reuse if the tools costs are dramatically low. Right. If you think of query, <laughs> a tool is a query that you write. Right. Then that 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 changes the conversation changes significantly. The con- right. Now, of course, some of the tools you do want to reuse. For example, you don't want to invent the parser for your whatever language you're having all day long, right? That that was obviously something you want to reuse. Or <clears throat> you know, once you have invested something onto a, into a technology, you want to have um, you want to have the tools that go with that technology. So, for example, and that's why I'm saying that it should also be the uh, the responsibility of a of a technology provider to to offer to offer the tools that help us decompose the technology. So, how do I debug a problem that comes that happens within my middleware uh, framework? Very often, what people what people do is they use a normal debugger. Uh, you know, from their whatever IDE is. So what happens when you, you're somewhere in your code, you put a breakpoint there, and then you say, oh, let's step in. And then... Well, you get frustrated very, right, quickly very quickly because you're diving through multiple levels of abstraction. And, nobody, and the thing is that the framework knows where you are. The framework knows where your, you know, your value, the added value is, which is in your code. But the tool does not allow the framework to uh, to inform us as okay why is why would you not have you know imagine a debugger which would allow you to say okay you're in your application step to the next time you 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 land in your application right and then delegate that through the technology and the technology would tell you okay that's the place and boom you will go there and you wouldn't have to think you would still the way you would think as a developer you would still think in terms of your domain because that's what you care about. You don't care that you're on top of uh, you know ten la- ten layers of abstractions uh, that you have no idea about, and that then if you pair that one, you make that one the responsibility of the tool of the framework provider, and then you create then the only thing that remains is you want an IDE or set of tools that are hospitable enough to allow these technologies to infuse the knowledge uh, into the tool, and that can transform the way developers think and work. Nice. So we talked about um, Moose 
a little bit. So I have my software project that I'm struggling with right now. Um, I have some applications written in Java using Spring, maybe whatever. And I want to come to this environment and start to use it. What, what, what is the process that I go through? What does it look like? Um, what are the things that it gives me? Say, oh, here, point it at my project. What happens? What do I get to do? Right. So um, in the case of Moose, what would happen is I just say, okay, here's the source code. You would also need to get the libraries that you're using, so all the jar files. Then those you parse that, you give that as an input to a parser. In our case, that parser is actually written in Java. And it, that one produces a, a model of the system. So it's kind of a, imagine like a huge graph. Does it pick up like, uh, like <laughs> the standard build uh, artifacts like Maven Palms or Gradle build files? Or do you need to tell it you need what to, to tell do? It. You okay. need to tell it a little bit uh, guided through that process. Okay. Uh, so you know, if you have a you have a Maven, then you know you can. It's very easy for to tell Maven to say, "Give me all the jar files that you're using," and then give that as an input to the parser. Okay. Um. So so that's kind of things. It's usually you know that process. You know, first time you do it, maybe it takes half an hour or something like that, and then but afterwards, you know, this this is something that you want to have automated. You know, it has to be. It's an, just another artifact that is part of your deployment pipeline, or a continuous integration at least. Um. But anyway, so you get that model and then you can load it into Moose, which is nothing but a little database, kind of a graph database. So Moose is a, is a Smalltalk-like system. Uh, it's built on top of that Faro environment, which is a Smalltalk-like system. And that we're representing uh, systems as, as, you know, object graphs. Okay. Uh, and then on top of it, you get a, an API with which you can query it. Uh, you also have all sorts of engines that allow you to, there's not just the API, but then you have very often, you know, you, when you're talking about graphs, there are certain ways in which you want to traverse graphs. Uh, so there are engines for that. Um, there are, you know, clusters, sometimes you want to apply some clustering. So there are, there are engines for that. And you, or you want to visualize something. So there's an engine for that that allows you to very quickly script something and uh, take the data and then transform it into a picture. But what we do is, to that extent, it's very, quite similar to R, right? But R is for data and we're sure, yeah. highly specialized for software. Um, although what we can we can also approach data in general. But um, where we take it a step further is that we integrate querying with user interface. So very often it's like for us, you know, clicking uh, on something, clicking on a navigation or writing a query um, are equivalent. These are equivalent things. You know, it's just getting you from one place to another place. And we have a, a concept of a user, a user interface concept that makes this possible. So imagine you navigate maybe following links up to a point and then it says, oh, from this point on, I don't have a link to do. So I want to write a query. And then you, but you don't want to leave the user interface. So you just write a query, get the result, and then continue clicking. Um, those kinds of things. Or you want to construct a, a picture right there in place, a visualization right in place. You take some minutes, you create the visualization, and then you continue clicking from it. And um, so that's basically what Moose is. So it's, it's, it's this idea that on the one hand, data uh, has, you know, because of its size, it has to be dealt with tools. On the other hand, our main focus is what's the cost of a new tool. So the research that we have put in it is about 
finding those, we, we just look at, for us, analysis is nothing but transformation. And, mm -hmm. you know, we look at it as a programming language kind of a problem. And the question is, what kind of constructs do you have? What operators do you have that you can, you know, simple operators that you afterwards can combine in all sorts of crazy ways to, you know, write transformations. And you look at it from that perspective, and we combine that one with user interface design as well and visualization. And you have a very rich, you know, environment there. So that's what we do with Moose. So one of the biggest problems that people will come to me and ask me how to solve is going back to your earlier point about the migration from a monolith to microservices is, you know, how do I quickly and accurately discover, you know, what are the true seams um, in my application? True what? Seams. What is that? Like the seam between... Uh, you know, when you when you bring two pieces of cloth together to make a garment, you've got I the see, seam, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so uh, Michael Feathers, when he wrote his uh, his book on how to deal with legacy, legacy code, yeah. he talked about right. detecting seams in the application mm -hmm. where you can actually introduce testing. Um, as of late, um, a lot of folks have borrowed that term to talk about. Well, here's how I actually start to decompose my application is, well, I find the natural seams where it makes sense to take these things that are currently glued together and break them apart. Um, is there a technique that I could use a tool like this to help me discover seams in an application like that? Well, yeah, but um, it, the technique starts from um, realizing that you're never looking for seams. You're looking for something that is usually more specific. You already have something that is in mind. You know, most tools and most this this the kinds of the, the way you phrase the problem is very generic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's the same problem that I would. It doesn't matter which system it is; it will still be a valid question, which also makes it uh, a less valuable question. Okay. A valuable question is one that really takes into account the specifics of your system, because you're usually very often not interested in all the themes possible. You're interested in some very specific ones. Okay. Um, and you, for example, you know, when you when you're splitting a a, um, a monolithical application to services, um, the first thing you do is you look at the business. Yes. Right, and then the business will say, "Oh, this kind of makes sense to me. This type of decomposition, these kinds of use cases, this kind of clustering would make sense." And the question now is, you want to take that as, a, as an input and you map that one. Does this make sense from a technical point of view? And now, when you're taking this into account, it changes the it changes the analysis that you're making. I'm not sure well, if that's that what, makes well, sense. No, it makes perfect sense because um, what 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 you run into and what I've run into multiple times over the last several years, and in, in it wasn't always microservices, but very often it was trying to figure out proper seams for modularity for other reasons. But whatever the problem, there was a disconnect between. What were the modules that made sense from a business perspective and how the code had actually evolved naturally over time right. such that the seams that I actually want to create, there's a higher degree of friction in the code as it stands to create those seams than if I just look at, well, the way the developers have thought about the system, they have naturally built these different modules that don't map to business. the business modules at all. <coughs> and so doing the decomposition you want is not always possible. And exactly. so what I would very often do is 
this stepwise decomposition where we tear apart what actually can be torn apart. And now that we have these pieces, we recompose them in a way that looks more sensible to the business. To the business. But there's sometimes multiple layers of that tearing apart, tearing apart, recombining, tearing apart, recombining right. before you get to where you want to go. Right. And it's discovering... Yeah, one of the techniques that I taught in that code archaeology class was, well, here's how you figure out the seams that the code wants to allow you to use right. so that you can break that down. And once you have it broken down, then you can recombine it into what makes sense. Right. So um, there are multiple things. You know, the, the conversation can go now into multiple directions. But um, one company I'm working with right now, it's a startup, and uh, they grew, and then they want to grow more, and they can grow more, apparently. And now what they realize is that, well, the business model isn't... We don't know exactly what our... Not the business model, but the model of the their understanding of their business is not quite... They understand that they don't understand that one. They can't formulate sentences with concepts. Um, they don't have a, a conceptual model well-defined. And as a consequence, the code is also not particularly uh, aligned with the business, or at least where to where the business wants to go towards. Mm-hmm. But that's because there's this missing piece, right? There's, the business still doesn't yet quite understand what the, the model is for their business, uh, so what the conceptual model is for, to, to describe their business. And as a consequence, also the code, well, couldn't really fit to it. So when we looked at the, we also looked at the code, though, to, to understand from the code uh, what concepts do exist there. And so some of the things we noticed there is that we have this, you know, we looked at data, uh, no, not at the data, at the data model uh, in, into the code. We can isolate those parts. And we saw in, in interesting nouns, but we didn't see any verbs. And obviously the business value never comes from nouns, it comes from the combination of noun and verbs. So, you know, like we looked at it and we saw classes, interesting classes, but no real behavior, no real methods. So, and the methods, when we looked at them and how those model objects were being used, were just being used implicitly throughout the system in all sorts of different ways. And the problem was that they, those, those places didn't have a name. So the verbs, you see, the, the, the use cases, basically, that were built on top of the, the workflow. In this case, it was a restaurant business or, or no, a business modeling restaurants. So and we were talking there about, you know, orders or, um, you know, a table or a product that is being consumed. And, but the workflow of how those things are being propagating, what, what's the order, uh, who's doing what, how are they negotiating things, um, wasn't explicit. And the consequence there was that you had that divide, but that was because there was nobody that understood really what the business should be. Now, the next thing is they imagine, so we're working now to say, to identify that model. Now, imagine that they will get that model. They will start to be able to formulate the conceptual model um, in which they can express business use cases. Now, it's in the interest of everybody that once you have a language like that, an understanding of what you, the model of your business is, you want to preserve that mapping, that understanding into the code as well. And this is not just a technological thing as a oh, this is a service, this is a service. That's not enough. You want, the constraints must be domain specific. And um, 
and sometimes you know very specific on, on how a certain maybe a use case is represented like in a certain way in a user interface or not so in the end what you care about you want to take this business knowledge and transform it into technological constraints and this is, you know, when, you, when I'm talking with, with people that are, you know, just going, especially in these software architecture conferences, uh, you know, just talking with people, very often the motivation for people to be here is because they want to move towards microservices. And I'm, and I'm asking them, so do you have a problem with scalability? And they said, no, not really. Uh, do you have a problem of releasing the different bases between different, you know, teams? Uh, no, not really. But then why would you want to move towards microservices? And then they say, because of modularity. So very often, not everybody, but a large percentage of people look at microservices as a solution for modularity. The, problem, the thing is actually that microservice is a high price to pay for Absolutely. just modularity. What they're looking for is constraints. But if they are not able to express, if, if they would be able to get constraints at a cheaper rate, at a cheaper cost, uh, than they do with microservices, but they should probably do that. And this is why, you know, if I can write a query against my system, I can also transform it into a test. There should be no call that does this and this and this. And that's a test. Right. And that is, that's, in, that's a constraint. Right. So we've, we finally worked our way to somewhere I hope that we would get to because I was reading um, some of the case studies that you sent where, you know, here was a problem that we wanted to solve and here was the constraint that we needed to prove that we did not recreate that problem. And then I saw some, I don't know if it was pseudocode or something related specifically to your tool that showed how you express that constraint and kind of um, the the language that you just used of uh, you uh, you want to uh, persist that constraint right such that as the architecture continues <coughs> to evolve that you know you don't actually recreate exactly that problem so yes. can can you tell me more about um, what I was seeing and, and and how that works right so what you've seen is not pseudocode but that's that's the thing that's where the, there's a bit you know, pseudocode was made to make things, to make programs look easier because normal programs were intertwined with so many unnecessary complexity mm -hmm. uh, or complications. Um, so that isn't pseudocode. That's how the queries actually look like okay. in, in Moose. Okay. Um, so that's a, so is that, what's that, is that Moose query language or? No, it's, it's so that's just the API. And because Faro is a, a small talk system, it means that it's a live system. So you can use programs as queries. Because it's like, it's not interpreted, but it looks like as if it would be interpreted. Okay. But it's compiled on the fly. So basically this means that a nice, nicely designed API transforms into a readable Kind of a query language. I mean, it feels kind of like a DSL for exactly. the exactly. structure. Except that of, it's, an, it's an internal DSL. For architectural, structural exactly. concepts. Right. That is okay. one of those things. Um, now, so, yeah, so once you're able to, to express a constraint, right? And I imagine you have a, you have uh, your analysis that is part of your continuous integration. By the way, one question, another question I'm asking people is if they agree that architecture is as important as functionality, at least in the long run. And everybody does agree that. And then I'm asking people, so do you test functionality? 
And people say, yes, we test those. Do you automatically test functionality? Yes, we do. Okay, do you test architecture? Uh, what no. does that even mean? What does that mean? <laughs> and that's the problem. Because you see, if architecture is as important as functionality, it means architecture is a business asset. Yes. It means that I should treat it and in the same with the same rigor as I do functionality. With functionality, I have a whole department that takes care of it. It ensures whatever properties of it. But we don't do the same with architecture. That doesn't really make sense. So, and then we should, right? So the question is, what is an architectural test? Uh, for example, a very simple thing. How do you ensure that all your services have the right security policy in place? That's, I mean, one way of looking at it would be to exercise these services from a functional point of view and then figure out all possible different combination of roles of, you know, from the input query and make sure that, you know, only the right ones go through. Uh, but that's an expensive, it's, it's an expensive way to think about mm -hmm. the problem. A much cheaper way to think about the problem says, oh, uh, where are all the services? Where are the configurations? Are they the right kind of configurations? Yes, no, boom, done. And it's a very simple thing. It's a simple way of looking at the problem. And now, of course, we are ensuring a functional uh, behavior, but the way we check it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a structural check. Mm. And so, because right now that this ability to, to, to check things structurally, look at our system as data and check them structurally, um, is missing, <laughs> we are basically not allowing ourselves to express those types of constraints. But there is no reason why those constraints, they, there is, they, they don't have to be expensive. They are not expensive and they shouldn't be. And so now, here's where it becomes actually more interesting. So, you know, um, there's quite some talk these days about agile architecture. Yes. What does it mean? Because <laughs> um, very often people say, well, that's kind of an oxymoron, but it isn't, right? Um, but still, what agile realizes is that, you know, the most important thing is the code. What's, it's what's in the repository. That's, the, that's reality. Everything else is a belief. Beliefs can be true or not true. And it's up to you now to say, do you invest in beliefs or do you want to invest in, in data? So now, but you see, if the real architecture is represented in code, it follows that developers are architects. True. But if developers are architects, all of a sudden we don't have one architect and 10 developers, we have 11 architects. And this also follows that architecture is a negotiation. Because my point of view and might not necessarily coincide with your point of view. It's also a commons, right? It's the result of all our actions. Right. And that commons will exist even if we don't necessarily define it as so. So now, up to now, we talked about how an individual would make a decision. But how does a group then utilize this ability to extract information quickly from the system in order to make decisions as a group? And this is why, this is where I think the potential is even larger than what we have talked about. Because the, the, time, the time people spend right now reading code is, uh, is, these are the direct costs. But the indirect costs are being seen in, uh, in the decisions that we make as a result of that time we have invested. So that's what humane assessment is and steering agile architecture is one of the applications of this one. In very short, basically steering agile architecture implies three things. First, you need to know where you are. Second, you need to choose where you want to go to. And third, you want to make sure that you're actually going there. Once you have chosen something, you want to ensure that you're going there. Now, of these three things, 
Only the second one is about design, is about choosing between trade-offs. The first and the third problem are assessment problems. They are not design problems. And I think these are the missing pieces of the puzzle of actually practicing Agile architecture. Excellent. Well, I think that's actually a pretty good uh, stopping point for, uh, for this conversation. Um, where can uh, people find out more about um, humane assessment and moose and the other things that you're working on? So all of these things are, to a large extent, free. So humane assessment, you can learn more about it at humane-assessment.com. Moose Technology is a free uh, open source uh, platform. You can learn about it at moosetechnology.org. And uh, feel free to contact me anytime. And my webpage is tudorgirba.com. Excellent. And we'll, uh, we'll put all those links in the, uh, the show notes for everyone that's not tr- taking notes right now. So my guest today has been uh, Tudor Girba. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Architecture Radio. For more information, including other episodes, visit us at softwarearchitecturerad.io. Join the discussion by posting to an individual episode's comment thread or leave us feedback on iTunes. You can also message or mention us on Twitter at SWArchRadio. Until next time, this is Matt Stein for Software Architecture Radio.